Hosanna, a fellowship of Christians. Good morning. Well, it's wonderful to see you all here this morning. If you're joining us online, good morning to you. And if during worship, I'll say this again when everybody's paying attention too. So some of you are going to hear this twice. If you would like prayer during worship, I just want to remind you there's a prayer room right there and there will be people standing there soon. (laughs) I don't know where they are right now, but I'm making the announcement that there's a prayer room. (laughs) Oh, there's one. (laughs) And there's always an elder and I think someone from the prayer team, I think it's that will always be there every Sunday. So I just wanted to make you sure that you knew that. All right. if we responded to stressful and difficult situations with faith and hope. Imagine how we could be a tremendous witness to those that need to see what active faith and trust in our Lord looks like. Remember Lot? He lost everything. But because he didn't blame God or turn from his faith in him, the Lord restored all of it, even doubled it, And as a result, his story is recorded in the Bible for all time, for all mankind to learn from. Are you willing to say this prayer? Here's my heart, Lord. I freely give it to you to use it as you will. You know, he's already ready to take you up on your offer. Let's sing that. Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart, Lord.
22 37 Jesus replied love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind in Jeremiah 17 7 through 8 but blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord whose confidence is in him they will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream it does not fear when heat comes its leaves are always green it has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. What gift of grace is Jesus my I can see. 
you're able, I'm going to ask if you'll stand with us. How I long to breathe the air of heaven where pain is gone and mercy fills the streets to look upon the one who bled to save me and walk with him for all eternity. Songs of faith we say through 
praise with our hands to the great I am. And here we have Deb. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see all of you this morning, and we welcome you to Hosanna. If you're a guest here with us this morning, we welcome you. There's a guest card you can fill out out at the Welcome Center on your way out this morning. Want to say hello to our family and friends online this morning. Good to see all of them here joining us as well. They can't see me. They can see me. We can't see them. But we know they're there, right? Yes. Let's pray before we take up our offering. Thank you, Jeff. God, thank you. You truly are the great I am. And Lord, I thank you for your presence here with us every day, all the time, wherever we are. I thank you for this congregation, Lord, for who they are, the way they love you, the way they minister to people, not only within these four walls, but beyond. Lord, I thank you for the gifts and the talents and the service they always bring before you. Lord, we thank you for the beauty of this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Ushers, you can pass the offering buckets. Our Change for Change offering for the month of September is going to bless Harry and Penka's Resurrection Church in Bulgaria to help with their Christmas gifts for their community. And if you want to send a personal monetary gift to Resurrection Church in Bulgaria, please be sure your gift is received by the church office or through push pay by Wednesday, October 4th. This year's gifts will be sent by wire transfer later that week. And for the month of August, our Change for Change offering went to Bridge of Hope. And I just want to share with you this email that I got from Caleb, who is with us here at Hosanna, but works for Bridge of Hope. Let me share this with you. This really got to me this week. And no matter how much money ends up in that change for change bucket, it goes to bless people. So listen to this. I just wanted to thank Hosanna for including Bridge of Hope in their giving. I wanted to update you on how we were immediately able to put those funds into use on Tuesday. There is a mom, we'll call her Jessica for anonymity, and her daughter who were leaving a domestic situation and had been couch surfing or sleeping on air mattresses at different relatives' homes. No one could provide a permanent place for Jessica to land. Yesterday afternoon, one of our supporting churches in southern end of Lancaster had a member who was willing to rent to this mom an incredible monthly rate. She is in her early 20s and has never been the sole provider for her or her daughter. But working two jobs, she is ready to take the challenge head on. We went and signed the lease yesterday afternoon. Hosanna's funds will help Jessica and her daughter move into safe and sustainable housing over the next week. They no longer have to worry about where they're sleeping. I met with their neighboring church last night, and they are all very excited housing has been found and are planning a housewarming to bless her with the items she needs to get started. Thank you for following the spirit and for playing a part in this family's journey. Amen, right? Yes. The change we drop out of our pockets into that bucket goes to bless a lot of people. Wow, that really got to me this week when I read that. Thanks for sending it, Caleb. The adult class, We Just Disagree, continues in the blue room today following the service. And it's not too late, men, to sign up for John Bentley's men's group, which begins this Thursday evening. 
uh, September 21st, again in the Blue Room. And on Sunday, October 1st, the elders and the prayer team are going to be having a time of prayer immediately following the service for any needs you may have. Now, for any of you who are a part of the adult class, they will, the elders and the prayer team will pray for you first so you don't have to miss the class. So you still are good for that. And on Tuesday, October 10th, Niels and Helen Cookie's home group is going to be feeding the housing insecure in Lancaster. And if you would like to help prep the food for that or to serve the food, sign up out at the Welcome Center. And just a little teaser, second week in October is Hosanna at the movies. You won't want to miss it. Just got to share that with you. We're really excited about it. Yes. And with that, I'm going to invite Tony up to the platform. Thanks, Deb. I got an email from Caleb this week as well, but it was a little different flavor to that, so <laughs> we'll just let that between us. Uh, he sent me a funny. Um, thanks to the worship team for this wonderfully contemplative uh, kind of worship experience this morning. Sometimes we just go all out and stand up and shout and dance a little bit, and sometimes we, we do a little quieter and let it sink in, and this, this seems to fit pretty well, perhaps, with... Uh, what we're talking about this morning. Uh, so let me start. To, I'm flying solo. Joanne is, uh, is, is helping others, uh, teaching others today. So, um, um, so sorry. Uh, <laughs> let me start as we have on the other messages in this series with a story. And this is one of my favorite stories. It takes place on January 25th, 1736. Uh, I was going to pick on somebody and say, who here remembers that? But uh, we'll do that to you. A lonely, wooden a lonely wooden ship advanced almost imperceptibly across the vast Atlantic Ocean. So on its trip from London to the American colony of Georgia, and on board were a group of English settlers who planned to, planned to settle there, but also some German Moravians. We know about the Moravians here in Lidditz. They were headed there to establish a settlement as well, a community there before they, 25 years before they end up here in Pennsylvania. Also on board was a brilliant young missionary priest. He had been appointed to be pastor to those English settlers, an evangelist to the Native Americans, if he had time. He was a graduate of Oxford University, and he was notorious there for he and his friends, they were known as the, derisively known as the Holy Club. They were notorious do-gooders. But he was bringing with him a bunch of spiritual doubts and questions. And he was watching the others closely to see how they lived, how they worshipped, and what mattered to them. And this is what he recorded in his journal that night of January 25th. He said, in the midst of the psalm wherewith the German service began, he's referring to the Moravians having a worship service, the sea broke over, split the mainsail in pieces, covered the ship with water, poured in between the decks, as if the great deep had already swallowed us up. A terrible screaming began among the English. The Germans calmly sung on. I asked one of them afterwards, where's... Old English, was you not afraid? He answered, I thank God, no. And I asked, but were you not your women and children afraid? And he replied mildly, no, our women and children are not afraid to die. 
And then the journal writer says, this was the most glorious day which I have hitherto seen. John Wesley, was who that was, regarded that day as glorious because it demonstrated to him right in front of his eyes a man who had never known freedom from the fear of death, that such freedom was indeed possible. And that reserved not just for the spiritual elite, which he regarded that he had not yet achieved, but he was one of those. He was clergy. But it was available to ordinary believers who knew God intimately. That changed something for him. He did not experience that freedom in that moment, but he desired that freedom in that moment. He wanted it. He stayed there in Georgia for two years and failed miserably. He failed to win the confidence of the people he tried to lead. He kept trying to impose do-gooder rules on them, and they weren't interested in that. He did not show much evidence of faith in Christ himself. It was hard for him to preach it to others. And so upon his return to England two years later, he sought out the leader of those German Moravians who had so amazed him on that voyage on 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 the crossing. And Peter Baylor encouraged him that his spiritual struggles were not a sign that something was wrong, but they were actually leading him to a good place. That there was something he was being invited into that was better than anything he had experienced. But what do I do in the meantime? And Baylor said, preach faith until you have it, and then preach faith because you have it. Isn't that good? Soon thereafter, after attending a Bible study one evening, alone in his room late at night, John Wesley found that faith. His own description of it was very simple. He said, my heart was strangely warmed. Isn't that awesome? And his life and his ministry was changed. You might recognize John Wesley's name as the founder of the Methodist movement. He was one of the greatest revival preachers in the history of the church. He preached faith passionately the rest of his life because he had it. Because he had a faith he was passionate about. He's worth a message all by himself in our series on this great cloud of witnesses that we've been doing for the past four or five weeks here. The great cloud of witnesses who have come before us and who have gifts to offer us in our own time. Now, I'm not going to take all of our time on Wesley today, uh, but this is the only time in the message he's going to show up. I do want to note that he was one of a large number of people in both Europe and in North America who were what we're calling witnesses to integration. This great cloud of witnesses, we've been talking about witnesses now for the past month. What were they witness to? I'll explain what I mean by that in a few moments. This was in the 17th and 18th century, the uh, 16th and 1700s for the most part. And these people, as we've been going through these periods of history, some of these people sound a, are, are a little bit foreign to us. They're a little bit odd. They, we, we don't think like they do. We don't worship like they do. And thank you for being appreciative of those stories we've been telling of the groups that are not necessarily like us. We're going to find, however, today that there's an awful lot of us in these guys. I'm pointing to the, to the PowerPoint for some reason, like as if they're sitting out there watching us, So maybe they are. Uh, but they're going to sound a little bit more familiar uh, to us today than so with those, some of those we talked about before. So let's do what we've done in other passages in this series and begin by describing in general terms what was going on in those centuries, and how this created this kind of an expression of faith. We'll do this in four movements, and they all start with R, so I'm very happy. (laughs) 
God made alliteration on the eighth day, and I'm just... First movement I'm going to call rending, which is our kind of old English word for splitting, tearing something apart. And that movement of rending had actually started over 500 years before. We didn't have time to introduce it when we were doing that particular message, but we wanted to come back to it because this is when a rending that had at that point already been ancient begins to be healed. Let's think of it this way. There are basically three parts of our our body that are involved in knowing. And for simplicity's sake, let's call them the head, the heart, and the hands. I do this with my students all the time. This is one of my passions as an educator. Most of you know I'm, you know, I'm a professor and an administrator. And I, so often, higher education has been focused on the head. And to have a, an educational journey, which is really a discipleship journey, that is also focused on the heart and the hands is, is incredible. And that's what we endeavor to do, the school that Joanne and I both teach at. It's what we endeavor to do here, too. Uh, hopefully you never come out of here feeling like you just heard a lecture. We will, we will give you stuff for your heads to percolate on, but we're always going to invite you a transformation of the heart and invite you to go out and do something with it with your hands. So when these three things work together, we are integrated. Witness the integration. We're more whole. And we also know what we know with more confidence. I know it in my head, but I also know it in my heart or my gut, and I also know because it works when I try to do it with my hands. I'm going to, it's going to be hard for me to control myself today because it's my favorite time period in church history, and there's just so much good stuff. But Jesus one time was asked, how do we know if what you're saying is really from the Father? And you know what his response was? Here are my three reasons in support. No, he didn't do that. You know what he said? John 7, 17. Do it. Do what I say. Then you'll know whether or not it's from God. We'll feel like God. We'll produce the kind of things that God is up to in the world. I love Jesus for that. It isn't just the head. It isn't just the heart. It is the hands. And when they're integrated, all is well. But when they're split, when they're rent from each other, then our knowing is impoverished. Our lives are impoverished. Our humanity is impoverished. And that's exactly what happened in the high Middle Ages, 500 years before this time, people. Some people, we can call them the scholastics, because they tended to hang around schools, <laughs> started focusing on matters of the head and saying that mattered more than the others. While mystics, and we love the mystics here because they get overlooked by most people, they tended, they were entranced by matters of the heart. But some of them said that's all that matters too. And most ordinary Christians who weren't in the monasteries and weren't in the priesthood or whatever, just trying to figure out what to do with their hands on a daily basis. And these groups started arguing with each other about which way of knowing was best. And they kept arguing about it all the way, as I said, 500 years into this time period we're talking about. And even to today, this argument continues. So I'm going to do 500 years of, church his, of, of, of world history or European history in the next two minutes. How do we know best? The people who supported what was then called the Enlightenment said we know best by thinking. Using our heads. This, this, this period occurred almost exactly in the same time period that we're talking about today. They were optimistic that they could figure out the big questions of life in the world with their heads, and that's incredibly optimistic, that every reasonable person would agree. Which is reasonable. It's rational. And if you don't get it, it means that you're bound to superstition or something. But if reason would lead us all to the same place. Many of our founding fathers were part of this Enlightenment camp. Some parts of the church fell into this trap. 
And so what they do, they emphasize theology above all else. If we could just get our doctrinal statements right to the exact right word, then everybody would agree, and it would all be seem reasonable, and then we could all be on the same page, and all would be well. What that meant, of course, is that it became an exercise in word games because no human word in any language is going to fully capture the mystery of God or the complexity of our faith. It became an exercise in deciding actually who's in and who's out and became very exclusionary after a while, a pattern that was inherited from the Reformation era, which we talked about last week, where they were dividing in the groups. We believe this, we believe this, we believe this. Okay, you guys go away. And by the way, you're probably going to hell because you believe the wrong things. But we, we here in our group, we've got it right. That pattern just continued for a while in this Enlightenment era. In opposition to them, the people who supported, here's another big movement in history, the scientific revolution, said we know best by doing, by using our hands, by experimenting, and then observing to see what happens. That's the scientific method. Beautiful thing. Most of the early scientists, by the way, were Christians. They were engaged in this enterprise in order to, under, to better understand what they considered to be God's world, God's universe. Let's, let's understand it better because then we can understand God better. It bears the marks of its creator. Eventually, though, hostility grew between some people in science and some people in faith. And that affected how we know. Still affects us to this day. We've got almost two camps that are looking one another and... Uh, with, with some level of suspicion. And uh, I'm going to take a risk here and point out that uh, my old friend Mike Renfro was sitting here today for the first time in a long time. And I love Mike because he's a scientist. And he's one of those people that tries to stand in between as a Christian and a scientist. We need more of those folks. And in opposition to both of those folks, or in the middle of them, were some who insisted that we know best by feeling, by using our hearts. Now, there's a whole period in history called the Romantic Era, and it actually comes a little bit later than that, but, but we can see some of it in this period too. Remember John Wesley? He had already tried using his head. He was a very intelligent man with an advanced degree from Oxford University. But he didn't have deep knowing. He knew a lot of things, but he did not know Christ yet. And he had tried using his hands. He was in service to the world even while he was a student in school and he became a priest and a missionary and he went to work, but all that without transformation. But when his heart was strangely warped, he was transformed. Now, the cool thing about Wesley is that while he needed that heart experience to complete his conversion, he did not denigrate or dismiss these other ways of knowing or other parts of himself. He didn't just say, it's just this and this tiny little box, and we're not going to pay attention to the other parts. Rather, he was a movement in his time period that was busy reintegrating what had been rent for hundreds of years. Maybe this was inspired, I don't know. It seemed reminiscent, as Joanne and I were preparing this a little bit, of the biblical vision of Ezekiel. Do you remember Ezekiel 37? He sees this valley of dry bones. Just the bones scattered across this whole valley, bones that have been dead for years. But the Spirit of God said, Ezekiel prophesy over them. And when he did, they came together with this loud clatter. You can almost imagine the noise, the thunderous noise of that, all these bones joining one another, and reformed together as whole skeletons. That which had been rent, that which had been separated, is now coming together and becoming whole again. 
And that's what's happening during this time period. After 500 years of tearing apart head, heart, and hands, John Wesley and others of that time period are coming, bringing them together. This movement of reintegrating was called pietism. This comes from a, the Latin word for devotion. Um, they were trying to get the head, heart, and hands to work as one. Our theme here. As Jesus told us too, they wanted to love God with all of their heart, all of their soul, all of their mind, all of their strength. In other words, with all that they are. And by the way, this is the second time you've heard that verse today. So maybe God has something, something that he wants to say to us. Maybe even some of us individually who've gotten a little off balance with some of those things. This is our theme verse for the year, which is why I pointed over here. Now, pietism with a capital P was started in the late 1600s by a Lutheran guy with the really cool name of Philip, John, uh, Philip Jacob Spener. Uh, let's pull him up because it looks like Spener, which would be fun, but it's German. And there are so many cool names in church history. I think last week we gave you Ulrich Zwingli. I have another one of my favorites coming out. But this one's Spener. Um, he promoted this kind of reintegrating, and, and he suggested what some of the implications of it would be if we would take it seriously. Implications for church life. Things that in his time were considered dangerously radical. Maybe to us, they're more and more normal. And if that's the case, it maybe means that the pietists won at least a little bit. That maybe they have affected how we do life together these days. He said, for instance, that preaching shouldn't just be an exercise in eloquence and rhetoric. Often it was then. You were to show off your learning. You were, to, you were to impress people by how well you constructed a message. He said, no, a sermon should be about inviting people to, to personal transformation through faith in Christ. It's almost reminiscent of Francis of Assisi's admonition. Preach the gospel. If necessary, use words. Well, it is necessary sometimes to use words, and you know Joanne and I, we're teachers, so we use a lot of words. You sit here for a long time, thank you. Um, and those are helpful, but... Man, if it doesn't make a change, if you're not taking in the words and processing them here, if it doesn't transform you, it's just wasted breath. And he says that's what it should be when we come together. But also Christians should, could and should, study the Bible together in small groups. Nobody had done this before. I shouldn't say nobody, that's pretty broad. But small group ministry, the kind of stuff that Deb was announcing here a few moments ago, was not part of church history before then. You came together in large groups in your parish church, but you didn't actually get lay people were not to be trusted with the study of the Bible by themselves. Until these guys come along and said, you bet you are trusted. You have the Spirit of Christ in you. You don't need clergy in the room all the time to explain exactly what all it means. And by the way, everybody, clergy and laity alike, is responsible for the ministry of the church. We are all ministers, everyone a minister, which, by the way, is part of Hosanna's mission statement. Some of you are fairly new with us, so let me tell you a story that some of you have heard before. When I started here, when I was fairly new, Carol and I moved into Lettuce, and we were visiting churches, and, and I knew I, I had been a pastor at that moment for a little while. I wasn't. And uh, so we, I, I got used to reading the signs, 
literally, the signs out front, or I'd come into church, and I'd be able to figure things out, and I'd look at the bulletin, and I would figure out what's going on, and who's leading here, and I'd look out the website and all this. I walked in here the first time, of Hosanna, in July 2005 or something, and for the life of me, I couldn't figure out who the, who the, who the, the ministers were. The bulletin did not tell me. And then there was just a bunch of people came up here and did things. <laughs> and actually, Joanne was this solo senior pastor in those days, and she was on sabbatical. So I'm not, I don't remember anymore. Deb, you may have been the one that, yeah. <laughs> Nobody, I kept looking for titles. And it finally occurred to me at some point along the way that the titles actually did not matter here. That there were people who did various functions, but it wasn't a, a distinction between the clergy and the laity. That this was a church that really meant that everybody was a minister. And people did things. And I, I just love that about this, this congregation. Spainer would have loved us as well. He said that we come together from small groups and we study the Bible together. And the study should form the heart as well as the head. And should result in a faith that is lived out in the world using our hands to serve each other. That it wasn't just for us. It was for the things that we do out there, for people in Bulgaria and for mothers who need housing through Bridge of Hope and for all the other ways in which we collectively, or in most cases, individually serve the world. And finally, Spainer said something that was really, really radical for his own time, where people were going to war over matters of theology. He said, if you find somebody disagrees with you, and you will, by the way, I, I find somebody in the mirror every, every day. <laughs> I can disagree with myself and carry in a perfectly good argument uh, without anybody else being present. He says, if you find somebody who disagrees with you, treat them with kindness. This is like 1686 or something. Boy, we haven't listened to him very well, have we, over the years? Maybe some of this is still radical, isn't it? Well, it sounded like gospel to a lot of people in his own generation and many others after that. And it crossed those theological and denominational splits that we talked about last week. We talked about some rending then as well. Pietism was present among the German Lutherans. That's who Spainer was part of. But also among those Moravians that Wesley met. They were pietists. And then the Methodists that Wesley ended up starting and leading because he became a thoroughgoing pietist, and so was his movement, at least in the 18th century. And it showed up every once in a while among the Puritans, who, by the way, despite the fact that they were known for a very, very stern faith with lots of rules, produced some of them some incredibly wonderful devotional literature. And it showed up among the Dutch Reformed and the German Reformed and the Anglicans and the Catholics, and especially among a new group formed about the same time that Spainer was in Germany, in England, there was a new group started. They called themselves the Society of Friends. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that a great name? Their founder was a guy named George Fox, which is also a great name. Their critics called them Quakers because they'd get a little emotional, a little enthusiastic, and their bodies would get involved in what they were doing, and and they would start quaking and shaking a little bit, and uh, the critics thought that was funny. They decided to take that as a badge of honor and allowed themselves to be called that. You see, pietism wasn't divisive. It was a movement of the spirit, and it tried to break rules, break barriers, and break chains, which, by the way, if you don't know, is our identity statement here at Hosanna. 
So I, what I'm suggesting is we too find ourselves very much in a pietist heritage. Maybe not all of it, and there's other influences that affect us, but it, it, you can see some of its influence among us. But the spirit wasn't done yet. Those skeletons in the valley of dry bones weren't much use to anyone. That dead skeletons, nice to have around. You're not, you're not rent and you're not divided, but you're still dead. They weren't used to anyone until the Spirit breathed onto, on them. And suddenly they had lungs filled with air and flesh appeared on those bones and they became alive again. And this is the third movement. This is the work of reviving. And just like in Ezekiel's vision, following the reintegration that pietism brought, a massive wave of revival swept across the British Isles and American colonies, reviving the church that had gone cold and sterile and was dead in many respects. This movement is often called the First Great Awakening. It was a title given to it 100 years later by somebody who was in the middle of another one who said, ah, we're doing this again. It's another awakening. Come out of your sleep. Wake up. God is active in the world. Participate. Be part of it. Revivalism, this experience was largely a new thing. Before this time, churches didn't have revival services. Um... Many churches still do this, by the way, usually bringing in some fiery guest speaker to rouse the crowd. My home church did. The churches I served early on in my ministry did. I wasn't quite sure why we needed a guest speaker. I've always, when I was a young pastor, I considered a little bit of, a, of an insult. <laughs> pastor Tony, you just don't have what it takes. We've got to bring in some high, you pay a lot of money for somebody else to come in. At a very scheduled time, Holy Spirit is not allowed to show up until March 24th when revival services begin. <laughs> some good things would happen in some of those, though. I made my first public confession of faith as a child in a revival service. I remember the name of the evangelist who was preaching. I remember where I was sitting in that church service, even as a child. What did I understand at that young age? Not a whole lot, but it was a faith that needed to be confirmed and affirmed along the way. But, but I remember that. Something happened there. These services in the 18th century weren't primarily about evangelism. They were there to revive the faith of people who had already considered themselves Christians but weren't acting like it was true. It was a call to conversion, nonetheless. It was a call to heartfelt transformation. It was a call to a personal, individual relationship with Christ. It was a call to an experiential faith, not just in their head, an experience that would change not only what they thought, but how they lived. Occasionally we get people that say, okay, what we need is a revival again. Can you bring a revival to us? What churches sometimes forget is that you don't need a revival if you stay alive. A revival is to rise from the dead. The need for revival indicates that something has gone very, very wrong that God's people would become as dead as dry bones. So yes, the Spirit can bring revival, but that's a last-ditch kind of last-resort kind of experience. It's best if we stay alive and we continue growing. Then we don't need to be brought out of our graves. Let's not go to the graves to begin with. Well, the 18th century church needed some revival. They really did. And so besides Wesley, you, there were others. You may have heard of some of these 
revivalist preachers of the era. You may have heard names. and Where did they fit in? What did they do? One was Jonathan Edwards in Massachusetts. Now, Edwards is most famous for his scary sermon. By the way, Edwards would preach for two hours in a monotone reading a manuscript. You like us better now, don't you? (laughs) One day he got up before his congregation and he read a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and it scared the you-know-what out of people. He imagined them being suspended like a spider on a single thread over the pits of hell. And they, people started shrieking out in, in, in fear and in horror and guilt for what they were experiencing. And the revival broke out that day, but it was one motivated by fear. Jonathan Edwards grew into this experience a little bit, and um, he actually did a little bit better as he got a little bit older and experienced and started talking much more about the love of God and our desire for God. In fact, his most positive contribution is a book called Religious Affections. The language is a little bit old. We could translate it today as, uh, as, as, well, actually, Spainer had written a book called Pious Desires. It was in Latin, so it was Pia Desideria, but uh, that's what it's translated into as English, which is pretty cool. We have desires in us that really are good, that lead us to God. Jonathan Edwards, 100 years later, is saying pretty much the same thing that our desires are not always bad things. That even, even the ones that feel like they could distract us and lead us away underneath the surface, what we're really wanting is intimacy with God, and we can pay attention to that. And those desires, those affections that we have in this old English word can lead us into intimacy with God if we allow it to. It's really awesome. Another one of the famous revivalists was George Whitfield. It looks like Whitefield, but he was British, so... Just don't pronounce some of the vowels. Uh, he was a friend of John Wesley's. Disagreed with him theologically, by the way, but they remained friends. He preached incessantly all over Britain. He made seven trips to America as well. He was, he was like the first Billy Graham-type person in, Amer- in, in, in religious history. I mean, this guy preached to large crowds in a days before microphones. That's why nobody had done this before. Nobody was loud enough to talk larger than maybe a room this size. But Whitfield was. They said that he, in this, in, in, without a microphone, you could hear him in a city from four city blocks away. One. Sorry, sorry, just, just checking, just checking that. I rise to the challenge. <laughs> I can be loud, just not for 45 minutes at a time. <laughs> oh, man, Whitfield could be heard. He was so eloquent, however. It wasn't just shouting. He was so eloquent that it was said he could make you cry just by how he said the word Mesopotamia. <laughs> he was so persuasive that one day, taking up an offering in Philadelphia for orphans in Georgia, everybody was going to Georgia in those days, He persuaded the skeptical and tightwad Benjamin Franklin, still a young man in those days, to drop all of his money in the offering bucket. (laughs) He's the one whose 250-year-old thumb I mentioned a few weeks ago, (laughs) which is in an archive in New Jersey, and I'm not repeating that story if you missed it. (laughs) 
What's really cool about the revival movement, for those of us who live in this area, and I know we have friends from outside of South Central Pennsylvania uh, participating, but to tell you, this was one of the hot spots for it. We are living, we are worshiping, we are serving God right in the middle of where the revival fires were. In fact, several local revival preachers ended up with an enduring national or international impact. Just give you a couple examples of people that you may or may not have heard of. One was the founder of American Lutheranism. Lutherans are probably not known for being very passionate revival preachers, but Henry Melchior Muhlenberg was. And Muhlenberg College, Muhlenberg Township, all the Muhlenbergs around here are named after him and his famous sons, one of whom, Frederick Augustus, once pastored a little Lutheran church in Schaeferstown, right up the road from here. And then he went into politics and became the first speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. So we had our own little Kevin McCarthy here, I guess, or something in this area. Another was the pastor of the German Reformed Church in downtown Lancaster. Church is still there. Philip William Otterbein had come from Germany to be a missionary, just like Wesley had in Georgia. He's going to be a missionary to the German settlers in his area who were largely without churches and largely without a living faith. And he ended up serving a couple of churches, but he was in Lancaster when he had an experience similar to Wesley's. He didn't talk about it much, but something changed. Something shifted inside of him. There was another guy at about the same time in Mennonite, farmer bishop named Martin Bohm, Bame, Beam. Every different group pronounced his name differently, who lived down there Willow Street. His farm still exists. You can see it. There's a little chapel with his name on it right there Willow Street. Well, out there while plowing his field one day, at the end of the field, one field, he did not have faith in Christ. By the time he got to the other end, he was weeping, and he did. He knew who Christ was, and it changed him. Beam and Otterbein, who were unlikely different denominations, different levels of education, different body types, it was hilarious. They met in 1763 at a great meeting in a barn that's just about six miles from here. It still stands 270 years later and started working together as United Brethren. This is my home denomination, by the way, which is why I love their story. And then they influenced a guy named Jacob Albright, a towel maker from Ephrata, who went to one of those United Brethren prayer meetings and ended up having his own experience. And, and he ended up starting a group that he called the Evangelical Association. He's buried over in Kleinfeldersville. These were local people that that started movements that were carrying on this tradition of pietism or revivalism and still do to this day. I see Jeff Barley over here clapping his hands because that's his tribe, the one that Albright started. Revivalists disagreed with each other on some of their theology. Those United Brethren, part of the reason they picked the name is because they, 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 they were from different denomination theological traditions. But they chose to work together because it mattered to them because of that shared experience that they had of being transformed by the encounter with Christ. One thing that many Christians did agree on in this time period, however, across denominational lines, was that they no longer wanted the church to be controlled by kings. That was the practice until then. The monarch would usually decide what faith or denomination the country would practice, and people had to conform either by worshiping at that church, that established church, or if you didn't want to go there, well, you could go someplace else, but you still had to pay your tithes to the government who would give it to the official established church. Some of the language in the founding documents of the United States are kind of pushing back against that. 
Again, because of revivalists that said, we don't do that anymore. The government should not be the one deciding what our church should be. When you had monarchs like Henry VIII, <clears throat> we talked about him last week, who were obviously not acting very Christian, you know, the argument for rebelling, that's the fourth movement here, for rebelling against government control seemed pretty obvious. <clears throat> and one of the most vociferous groups in rebellion were the Scottish Covenanters. Wow, I told you we'd get to them. This is, this is what allows tribes. <clears throat> they were Presbyterians in Scotland who covenanted together, thus their name, against, uh, in, in agreement on certain things that mattered to them theologically in terms of church life, but also against several generations of Scottish and English kings in the 17th century, people that they thought were doing damage to the church and ought to keep their hands out of it. Sometimes they, uh, they disputed with them in theological disputes, and sometimes it was in parliamentary maneuvers, and sometimes they engaged in outright civil war. Those Presbyterians weren't afraid to pick up a gun once in a while. And that impulse was brought to the American colonies. This area, an awful lot of the Scottish Presbyterians settled in this area. And it later helped fuel the American Revolution. It was some of this impulse. Rightly or wrongly, this was part of the, the story of the time. So that's people who are challenging the government's control of the church. There were also people who challenged the church's control of government. Because that was true as well in some places, particularly in New England. One of those people was named Anne Hutchinson. You know, it's really hard to find a female revivalist in this story. This is a period in time in which women were not very much allowed to lead. Anne Hutchinson was one of the few that did. It's a lousy, <laughs> I don't know what she's doing for ads. <laughs> But it's, it's this beautiful picture of a bunch of people sitting there listening to, it, to a woman talk about matters of the Bible and of the Spirit. And uh, she, was, she was like that. She was a midwife. She began hosting meetings of young women at her house. She would offer spiritual commentary. She would critique the sermon that they had heard that week. And then she started inviting men as well. And this did not go over. You don't have the authority to do that. You're a woman. You're not educated. You can't do that kind of stuff. And they tried to shut her down. They thought it was dangerous behavior. Eventually, the clergy used political power. And they brought her to trial. Not in the church. The government. They convinced this was a, this was a legal entity, a legal event. She was brought to trial she was convicted of lawlessness because she did not follow authority. And she was banished from the colony of Massachusetts. She then joined Roger Williams in his new colony of Rhode Island, which is not an island, uh, where the intention was to offer freedom of religion. Anybody can come here and you can practice what you believe. And then she eventually moved on to New Amsterdam, which later became New York, where she and her family were, were, were killed in a surprise attack by Indians who having their own lands encroached upon. So her old opponents back in New England, when they heard about her death, rejoiced. They declared that it was the judgment of God upon her for her lawlessness. As we can see, it was still a contentious time in history. But I'm a historian, so I ask this question. What time in history has not been contentious? One question we've been asking each week is, what did the unique circumstances of their time in history mean for how they tried to know God? What, how did this impact their spiritual life? I've already alluded to a number of those things, so let me just summarize a few fairly quickly. First, they saw the individual and not just the group. 
this individualism began with the Reformation. In the next couple of centuries, Christians increasingly believe that each person is responsible for their own reasoning, their own choices, their own faith. It became increasingly likely that a person could be seen as a unique individual with emotions and longings and aspirations unique to them. By the way, this wasn't just true in their faith. This is the period in which they first started writing novels and keeping journals. Because before, who really cared what your, what your inner thoughts were on that kind of experience? You didn't matter as an individual, but in this time period, they did. And so even fictional characters who could explore their inner life. George Whitfield journaled everything and sold his journals, and Ben Franklin made a heap of money being his publisher. Um, Franklin, by the way, I mentioned this story before, Franklin and Whitfield became friends as business partners as well. And uh, Franklin records in his own autobiography. Uh, he says, Mr. Whitfield, um, Mr. Whitfield desired to convert me, but alas, he never had the pleasure. One of the saddest things in this, that despite his eloquence and his persuasion in the work of the Spirit, Ben Franklin remained a skeptic all of his life. In this time period, they looked at the inside too, not just the outside. They were very introspective. They looked inside. They didn't always like what they saw. People in this period had a strong sense of sin, which is why they responded so, so fearfully when Jonathan Edwards talked about that spider hanging over the pits of hell. They used words like worm and wretch to describe themselves. Remember Amazing Grace? John Newton, in this time period, used that word. He saved a wretch like me. Well, we know a bit of Newton's story. He probably was a wretch, but God loved him too, and he was transformed. Grace was hard for them to believe, much less received. Uh, to receive. But when they did, they were overjoyed, and they were transformed. They wanted to stay in the grace. They were continually checking themselves and checking in with others to see if they were sinning or somehow failing to show the love of God in their heart, if they, were, if they were moving away from grace. And so another point is that they sought transformation, not just salvation. For these Christians, as it is, I think, for most of you, faith wasn't just about getting their sins forgiven and getting into heaven. That was kind of the side benefit. They wanted to become better people. They wanted a better world. Some even believed, Wesley promoted this idea of Christian perfection. That they could root sin out of their lives entirely, at least willful sin. And so he wrote a whole book on it. Now, some missed the point and became legalists and forgot about grace in the process. And some sought emotional experiences, experiences more than the one that they could meet in them. You know what I'm talking about? You get addicted to the experience and forget the person that you're, you're supposed to be encountering. But underneath even those mistakes was a desire for something really good. So what can we learn from them for our own lives? We look back upon this time period, upon the pietists and revivalists. What could we bring forward from them into our own time and our own faith? Well, I've been pointing out some of those things already. Let me suggest, again, some, summarize some of those. One thing might be their passion for missions and evangelism. They basically, these people created the Protestant missionary movement. In their own time, they preached both inside the church buildings, and this was really shocking at the time. They preached outside the church buildings. You weren't allowed to do that. 
But Wesley wasn't allowed to preach in a church because the minister locked the door on him. He'd go out in the cemetery and stand on a tombstone, and they'd have church. When he was asked, well, where is your parish, Reverend Wesley? He'd say, the world is my parish. I'll go wherever the Spirit leads me to go to preach the, the glad tidings of salvation. So these people encourage us to see outside of ourselves, to see that God loves everyone. Everyone. They talked an awful lot about Jesus. Theirs was truly a Christ-centered gospel. I love them for that. They also encourage us, as I've already mentioned, with their willingness to work across church divisions, even though they disagreed with one another on things. One of my heroes here is Nicholas von Zinzendorf. My favorite name in church history. The Moravian leader who started their work here in Lidditz. Big, big name in church history. He was always trying to get churches to work together. We introduced a principle a couple hundred, a couple, several weeks ago that was a couple hundred years old by the time Zinsdorf picked up on it, but he loved it. He talked about it all the time. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. And he lived that out. A third thing is that these people can also give us an appreciation for what they called enthusiasm. This is the word that they use to describe an emotional response to God's love. And their critics warn the people against it. Don't be enthusiastic. <laughs> when, I, um, when I started working at a seminary 13 years ago, I changed the name of the seminary magazine. It was something boring, like in ministry or whatever. And given that we have these revivalistic Heritage at the seminary that I, that I lead, I changed the name of the magazine to Enthuse. It, it, partly because of this, although, you know, most people don't know that, that history, and partly just because it sounded like a really cool name. Uh, I immediately got an email from somebody who was wondering if we were uh, practicing heresy there, because enthusiasm is not a good thing. And there was a, a sermon by a very famous minister at the time who was preaching against it. The Pietists and Revivalists were un, <laughs> unconcerned about that. They were enthusiastic about enthusiasm, about anything related to the cross of Christ. What they meant by that enthusiasm was an emotional reaction. And yes, can you get overly done on the emotion? Absolutely. But compared to what was going on in the church at the time and the deadness of their services and the deadness of their hearts, they didn't mind a little enthusiasm. And our relationship with God has a certain passion to it, passion of romance, Passion of gratitude, passion of amazement, passion of anticipation, of desire, religious affections. Jonathan Edwards might not have brought that passion to his preaching, but he brought it to his spiritual life and what he invited people into. So what did they do with this then? What did they do with their enthusiasm? What spiritual practices were important to them? We've been asking that question each week as well. I will tell you that they are ones, for the most part, that brought together head, heart, head, heart, and hands. They were ones that brought together individual activity with group activity. They were ones that allowed them to express their passions and their aspirations. So, for instance, they pretty much invented the idea of daily devotions. Not just what you do when you come to church, but on a daily basis, as an individual Christian, they engaged in private fasting. They did practice that is largely not practiced in our generation. Uh, prayer, Bible reading, devotional readings, journal writing, 
This was all part of their daily devotional life, and it mattered to them. But their faith was not just private. It was also public. So they would engage in acts of service, like feeding the hungry, educating the poor. The Sunday school movement grew out of this. These poor kids are working, in, are working there uh, all week long. They don't get a chance for an education. Let's bring them into the church on Sunday afternoons when the service is over, and let's, let's teach them how to read. That's where that started. When they came together for worship, they were really, really into singing hymns. We mentioned this one last week, that the, there was some hymn singing that began the Reformation, but I'll tell you, 200 years later, this is a big thing. Charles Wesley, John's brother, wrote over 6,000 hymns all by himself. And we, we're going to listen to snippets from all of them today. No, no. <laughs> Here's a snippet from a very familiar one. See if you recognize this. Jeff. hear it in two lines, the passion of the revival, spread through all the earth abroad, my gracious master and God, a God of grace, over a thousand tongues, a bit of an exaggeration there, but the passion that was behind that, I wish I could sing with a thousand voices, how wonderful you are, that's revivalism, that's the kind of stuff they would sing. They would gather in small groups for prayer, and they would gather for lots and lots and lots of prayer meetings. The Moravians, by the way, hosted a 100-year prayer meeting. They kept praying for 100 years. People just continually moving in and out. They believe it changed things. They gathered in small groups for the relationships that are formed when you meet regularly with one another. They learned to each ask each other hard questions about their spiritual lives. They could help each other remain holy and faithful. So John Wesley's groups, they were called bands. They would gather together, and he gave them a list of 21 questions, and they were like, did you sin? They were to ask each other when they got together, did you sin this week? Did you think about sinning this week? Did you put yourself in a position where you could have sinned this week? Did it ever even occur to you that you could sin this week? You know, I mean, they were just, they, they allowed them, each other some extraordinary amount of, um, of accountability on those kind of things. That is un, maybe uncommon, but they wanted to help each other stay in the grace. There's one more practice. And this one we're going to invite you. Every week we've been closing by inviting you to briefly practice a practice from the time period that we're talking about. And the one we're inviting you to do today is the sharing of testimonies. They would encourage people to tell their stories. Actually, first, there's a, before I get into the description, there was a handout that you should have been offered on your way in. And if you did not get a handout that looks like this, could you raise a foot or a hand? Um, I guess it would be a foot out, wouldn't it? And our ushers will make sure that... Um, thanks, Kevin. I think I see a hand over here or so, maybe one or two over here as well. And if you're online, we're going to put the words on the screen so that you can, you can watch as well. So, 
And now I got to go back to my notes. They invented this as well. People did not do this, particularly in public, before this time period. Uh, they would encourage people to tell their stories. They would sometimes even require it. You want to join our church? We get to hear your testimony. You got to know if something real is going on inside of you. The stories would be what life was like before they were converted to a deep personal faith in Christ and how they were changed as a result. So, real simple. We know many of you have stories like that, so we're going to invite you to, to ponder your own testimony. This is called, to make it real easy, the one-minute testimony. You can fill in some blanks here and in one minute, tell what Christ has done for you. Okay? So, these are the four questions. This makes it real easy to organize your experience of Christ if you're one of those that said, I know Christ has done something for me, but there's not, I don't know how to say it. Here's maybe a way to say it. And then we're going to have just enough time to invite a few of you, if you wish, to use this microphone and to come up and, um, and say it in one minute, okay? Not 30, one. Okay. Um, first question, describe your life before Christ. There was a time in my life when, and then write up the three adjectives or phrases. There was a time in my life when I was feeling pretty miserable. There was a time in my life when I was ready to give up. There was a time in my life when whatever it might have been, whatever it might have been, or things were going really good for me, but there was no meaning in it. I'll, you keep writing. You can ignore me. I'll keep talking uh, in case it's helpful. Um, one of my favorite testimonies is that of a friend of mine who says, I, uh, he says, I came to Christ because life was so good and I didn't know who to thank. How about that? They're not always coming out of the pits of sin and despair. Sometimes it's coming out of something else. What was life like before you knew Christ? And then, if you have a testimony, usually there's a turning point. Maybe it's a series of them. I think for most people it's a series, but maybe there's one in particular that, that really started redirecting you a little bit. The question there is, how did you hear about Jesus? You may have heard about Jesus for a long time. Maybe the better question is, how did you meet Jesus? When did this become real? How did you encounter Jesus in a significant way? And when I realized that Jesus died for my sins, or when I realized that Jesus loves me, when I realized that God was for me and with me, whatever you, however you want to word it, I did what? I invited him to do what? I invited him to clean me up. I invited him to give me hope. I invited him to change my life. Then what difference has he made? Since I've met Jesus. When I, when I was preparing for this, there was an old hymn that entered my mind. It's not from this time period. It was one that I was raised on in my church. Since Jesus came into my heart. Did anyone know that song? Floods of joy or my soul. I can't do the high notes. Like the sea billows roll. Um, they did a lot of sea travel in those days. Write how Christ has changed your life. Up to three phrases. And then... Finally, finish one of these phrases. In other words, what were you saved from? Pick one of these. If I had never met Christ, I've had people, I, I'm surprised how many people have said this to me over the years. If I hadn't met Christ, I'd be dead now. If I hadn't met Christ, I would have something, something, something. Or without Christ, my life would have been 
without nearly as many problems, but without nearly as many choice, somebody once said. I'll be quiet for about a minute, and then I'll look for some volunteers. You can come up here, but Jeff will also bring the mic to you. Jeff, you, Donnie, you want to get us started? Oh, yeah. I'm about jumping out of my seat. <laughs> <laughs> You're allowed to do that in a revival service, I... <laughs> by the way. <laughs> um, I'll try and make this quick, of course, one minute. Uh, what was my life when I was self-serving, I was a serious druggie, and I just didn't care? Mm. When was my turning point when I realized he died for me? First was when I was a Mennonite, and I was about 12 years old, but I didn't understand what the true conversion meant and applied to me. Then I met him when I was in a hospital in the psychiatric ward because I didn't know how to handle life when I always went to drugs, but now I wanted to do it without drugs with Christ. So he visited me. He visited me in that room, and we had a face-to-face -face conversation. Ah. Um, since then, I've been caring. I love my life. And as your sermon says, mind, heart, and hands are put in action. What would I have been if I've never met Christ? I would be dead, as you said, many say, or I would have been killed due to the situations I was in. Awesome. Now, what would they do in the old revival meetings when somebody shared a testimony? They would do, be an awful lot of amens. There would be some hallelujahs if you were enthusiastic. In the 21st century, maybe we can settle for some hand clapping, but to respond, <laughs> however is appropriate. Bless you, daughter. We're glad that... Um, you're alive in all the ways that you can be. Who else? See, that's the problem. You got a really, really good testimony. Everybody else is like, mine's not nearly that good. So no. Not a matter of being good. Not the story. It's who you are. Anyone else want I'm waiting for a moment not to pressure. Maybe I'm wrong. I just got the sense that the Spirit, there's at least somebody out there that's supposed to say something this morning. So I'm going to give you a moment and see if that's right or not. Okay, Jeff. You just did that because you're my friend and you feel pressured. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a time in my life when I was fearful and I felt unloved. It's it's on, but okay. 
right, there was a time in my life when I felt fearful and unloving. When I realized Jesus died for my sins, I invited him into my And? <laughs> I felt my voice. And I was transformed. <laughs> And since I met Jesus, I know love, and I love others. And without Christ, my life would have been frustration without his presence. Thank you, Jeff. One of the cool things about being in community is when people share their testimony, you, we know each other well enough, we can say, uh-huh, yeah, I, I see that in you. I've seen Jeff go through um, some really hard times in the last year and a half. He lives this out. It's true. I know that about him. And uh, we can affirm that. Donna, we know it to be true for you. So, I won't put anybody else in the hot seat unless somebody's out there like, no, Tony, it was me. Wendy, is it you? <laughs> Wendy just loves talking to my in microphones. Before I was a Christian, I went to a Lutheran church, and you don't know it or hear anything about being born again or, you know, what we practice here. And then I went to Assembly of God who made you feel like you weren't a Christian if you didn't speak in tongues and do all kinds of honky-tonky stuff. And then I thought, no, I'm not staying here, so I came to this church. Now, this is the church. And since I've been here... I feel like I am, uh, I'm happy. I cannot hardly stand to miss a day without church every week. If I don't go to church on Sunday, I do not have a good week. And I love music, and God has given us his station 101.3, which is absolutely the best Christian station there is. So I listen to that all day long, and I make sure I come here. But if I didn't have this or I wasn't a Christian, I would not feel like I even had a life. Because until I would ask Deb to help here and do things, I felt like I wasn't needed anymore. So I have really changed since I've come here and really let God into my heart. And I'm so glad I did. Amen. I love you. <clears throat> and we see that in you too, Wendy. Everyone knows it's Wendy. We're going to close. We've been closing every week with a blessing. This is not a blessing. (laughs) There's a blessing in it. It's a strenuous prayer because that's what these people did. Strenuous prayers. And this one is from John Wesley, who we began with and I mentioned along the way. One that perhaps we might dare to pray with him. Maybe because it's already true or maybe just simply because we hope that one day we will actually mean it. So some of us might want to pray it in aspiration today. It's called the Wesleyan Covenant Prayer. I invite you, if you're comfortable praying it in hope or in confidence, to pray it out loud with me as we close today. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Place me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be put to work for you or set aside for you. Praise for you or criticize for you. 
Let me be full or let me be empty. Let me have all things or let me have nothing. I freely and fully surrender all things to your glory and service. And now, O wonderful and holy God, creator, redeemer, and sustainer, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it also be made in heaven. Amen. By the way, if you've never prayed anything like that before, or minutes like that before, you just became a Christian. Let us know. Go in that peace. Go in God's grace.